to the IoT podcast. My name is Jack Callow. You, you may be wondering why Tom isn't with us here today. Not to worry, he will be back. Um, it's just that today is an Agritech special. Today I am delighted to welcome a really exciting guest. He is one of the most recent pioneers in the UK vertical farming scene. Please welcome Jamie Burrows, CEO of Vertical Future. Welcome, Jamie. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you, Jamie. So I guess to kind of kick things off, um, it'd be good for all of our viewers out there who, who kind of don't know what vertical farming is, for you to just sort of explain exactly what it is and, and maybe a bit about how you got into it and kind of why you're so passionate about it as well. Sure. So vertical farming is essentially the growing of plants in stacked layers or on a vertical wall. And vertical farming is a very broad definition. So I guess in our context, it's probably helpful to say that we, we work in a sector called control environment agriculture, which is a subsector of broader vertical farming. Uh, it's much more controlled, as the name says, and uh, it's effectively an environment where we protect plants from many uh, other aspects that they'd otherwise have to deal with if they were growing outside. So indoors, we, we use LED lighting to buy different types of wavelengths to, to plants and levels of intensity for different durations photo periods. Um, we, we obviously can play around with nutrients. Um, vertical farming, because of, uh, because of the stacked layers, allows us to grow a lot more produce in any volume of space. So from a land use perspective, it's, uh, it's very, very interesting as well. And, uh, and obviously, because we're growing indoors, we don't have to worry as much about pests. So we don't have to use chemicals. We end up with a much better product, uh, product at the end of the day. So there are many, many benefits to vertical farming. Um, I got interested in it because, well, my, my angle is health. So I came from a, a health uh, healthcare and life sciences background. I, I worked for about 10 years, first in economic regeneration, and then at uh, some consulting companies like EY and Deloitte at the time at the Department of Health. Very interested in the way that technology um, can bring about positive change in terms of health and, and social impact. Um, and that's all very much linked to the environment and the world we live in. Right, yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much for that overview. Um, and I guess so, as a, as a really good starting point for us both, as this is the IoT podcast, I was excited to ask you kind of how you think IoT technology can kind of be leveraged to not only innovate farming, but also sort of support um, and better the future of food and, and, and affecting things like time to harvest um, and disease and, and nutrient levels and, and environment, etc. Well, IoT is effectively a, a network of things that are connected, as I'm sure your, your viewers know. Um, our vertical farms are highly dependent on, on IoT. So because we, we build systems that are highly automated and require very little human labor, it means that we have a very heavy reliance on machines and sensors, uh, data and software to tell us if something's wrong. So um, one basic example would be using fluorescent imaging to see a product that may be in the middle of one of our farms, 20 layers high, um, six columns along, the human's never gonna go up and, and touch apart from you know, periodic maintenance every few months. Uh, and the, the sensor will then tell our system, our, our, our software, which is Diana, uh, if there's something wrong. And then we'll be able to effectively pull that plant back through the system. That's one example. Another example would be um, using very basic 
uh, environmental sensors and other aspects to see what's going on throughout the environment, if there are any variations, things that we need to, to change. Um, another one might be using lighting. I've always already referred to the fact that we are highly dependent on LED lighting and for different different products, like different types of light, also at different stages of growth. So um, by controlling that and using our software and, and lots of different gadgets throughout our, our farms, um, we're able to play with that as well. So, um, so yeah, very, very important for, for pretty much everything that we do. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. It certainly seems to be heavily involved in the future of this industry. Absolutely. And it's interesting, some of my friends uh, who are sort of also involved in this industry have been talking to me recently about how they've been expanding on the, you mentioned lighting there, sort of wavelengths and things like that. And a lot of them have been mentioning how they're expanding on this and sort of going, moving away from your more traditional red light split of lighting. Um, and now even looking beyond the spectrum, going into green and yellow and things like this. Um, so I was interested to hear your thoughts on that and if, if that's something the vertical future are adapting and if, if, if IoT is obviously helping that sensor to, to adapt depending on the plant. Sure. So we have our own lighting solution, which obviously we work with a, a manufacturer um, here in the UK to, to put together. Um, it has five different types of, of LED uh, lights on it and um, they range from red all the way through to UV. And we believe that every single plant needs something different. So having a, I guess the days where, and, and still a lot of vertical farms do this and not necessarily anything wrong with it, but we don't feel that you can fully optimize your growing process unless you're able to effectively uh, vary the lighting type and intensity for each particular crop. So when we actually started out in 2016, we were using off the shelf um, lights, which Effectively, the room ends up looking pink because it's about 70% red, 30% blue. Red and blue are the two main light types that, uh, that you know, plants um, respond to. But um, other, you know, by, by using effectively a, a solution like that, we were always quite limited. So, for example, it was very difficult to get uh, some of our crops to flower if we wanted to grow edible flowers or if we wanted to grow fruits, it was very difficult to grow those. So, um, so moving forward, I think the industry is becoming more and more savvy and, and understanding that, that we do need to be a lot more science and plant science led and have better lighting solutions that we can, we can apply. So the way that our systems work, you know, we could have a system which is um, in the Caribbean, one in uh, the Middle East, one in the UK. We're tracking all of that data centrally and we can tell not only, you know, what's going on within the environment, but what type, type of lighting is being applied by what stage, what crops are being grown, and we can compare all that data and, and figure out, you know, um, what the best recipe really is for any given given crop. Yeah, amazing. And, and actually, it's interesting because I'd never thought, thought of this before because it being a sort of controlled environment, like you said earlier, from the CEA is what this is all about. And it's actually something that I heard at um, the CEA 4.0 event, which was being held last week, and I know that vertical views future were, were uh, represented there. Um, I heard people talking about the introduction of bees because you started talking then about the, the flowering, obviously, is, is, is quite important and how they're going to sort of try to bring bees into the equation. Um, and that's something I've never really considered before like being a controlled environment. I don't know how you bring bees in it, but obviously they're such an important factor, obviously huge pollinators. Um, so is that something that you see as, as being a successful adaptation into vertical farming? Yeah, I think I think. Bees have been used in vertical farms for quite a long time. Oh, really? So I think uh, 
I mean, not it's not widespread, but there are certainly some vertical farms globally, especially in Asia, that have been doing it. Um, and it's if you want to grow fruits, it's um, it's very important. Obviously, if you unless you go around and pollinate by by hand. Um, so yeah, I, I believe you can have a very controlled environment, and uh, and at the same time, you know, introduce um, bees and uh, other. You don't you don't really have many other alternatives uh, when it comes to uh, to pollinating, and you know if you can't pollinate, you're you're really in trouble. Um, problems with bees are obviously they can die, and then they can end up in random places around the um, around the farm. Uh, another one is that actually LED lighting can sometimes uh, mess with bees a little bit, and they can get a bit lost and uh, go a bit crazy. Um, or so we've heard. There's no data to support that. This is just uh, some industry insights. Um, but yeah, we we um, we've certainly started to use them and uh, and and feel like that's the best approach. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I guess it presents its own new problems that are going to be interesting to sort of find the solutions for. But yeah, definitely, as you said, they need to be involved in the process, don't they? Absolutely. Okay. So um, I guess another good question would be to say, what other challenges do vertical farming and and agritech more generally? Um, what other challenges do they address in terms of things like sustainability um, and communities, uh, the economy, and, and particular, particularly food inequalities? Sure. So most people, when they think of vertical farming, they think of food for human consumption. So I guess that's what I'll focus on first. So one of the, I've really talked about, you know, some of the, the key um, value drivers or value propositions for vertical farming, things like um, Freshness, because you're located much closer to a customer, a land use, non-use of pesticides, i.e. growing a, a healthier product that's better for human consumption. They're the kind of main ones. But I think some of the um, less talked about ones are things like in, um, encouraging improvements in biodiversity. So obviously, you know, biodiversity is on the decline. Uh, insect populations are dying out. Soils facing you know, degradation. Um, so by actually controlling farming, not for everything, but for particular products, um, using less land. Um, one potential argument could say that we're, we're then reducing pressure on otherwise, you know, very scarce farmland. And under the assumption that, you know, something good is then done with that land, um, you know, one could argue that, uh, that vertical farming is definitely one, one way forward. Um, I mean, as an example, our systems, we can grow the same as a traditional farm, but in about 3% of the space, um, depending on the, the height of the farm. So, you know, moving forward, if you look at what's happened in, in our natural world um, since the, you know, the 50s, the 60s, there's been a, a gradual decline in the, um, in the amount of available land and a massive increase in, in the amount of land used for, for intensive farming. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw a staggering statistic recently about sort of in the 50s, it was a really small percentage of people were living in cities. I mean, I know it's a large amount of people in the rural areas, but still there was a lot of land out there that was being cultivated for, for, for agriculture. But now, yeah, as, as the, the cities have expanded, of course, that's just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Um, and a lot of land grabbing going on as well, being used for other things. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and, and I, I think just to add to that, you know, the fruit and vegetables, a lot of fruit and vegetables are not actually one of the main causes of that. A lot of it's down to things like palm oil, um, beef. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there's lots of other bigger causes, but I think you know, every industry or part of the industry should really do their part. And then um, I guess the second response to your, to your last question, as well as the ability for controlled environment agriculture to, to also provide solutions for other industries. 
um, like the perfume industry, like cosmetics, nutraceuticals, phytopharmaceuticals, all of these industries are also heavily dependent on outdoor uh, agriculture. So um, it's not just about food for human consumption. Of course, yeah, yeah. There's a lot more there to consider than just food for, yeah, for, for human beings, absolutely. And what would you say, again, as well, about sort of, because this is a huge factor, I know, and I heard a crazy story recently, and it's something that we all take for granted. A guy who I know went to the supermarket, bought a packet of three onions, uh, it's about 79p, and they come all the way from New Zealand. Um, and he's here in the UK with us. So it's just staggering to, to think that, that three onions have travelled all that way, as far as they really could go. Like travel. Um, so obviously for you, I'm guessing um, food mileage reduction is obviously another massive factor that vertical farming is going to help with. Yes, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's not a surprise that these kind of things happen, you know, three onions no. traveling across the world. I mean, it's, it's globalization, that's capitalism, it's, it's free market economics. So um, yes, you know, vertical, we've done a lot of analysis and, and it, it's a very, very clear argument. Um, in, in terms of you know reduced food miles, um, having less vehicles on the road as well, um, rubber as well, rubber from from vehicles is actually quite a big pollutant. Um, so yeah, that's that's a very clear value proposition. It has been for for quite a long time for vertical farms, you know, over the last uh, last decade. Because I mean, we can even be turning the office block that I'm sat in right now. We could even be turning this into its, its own vertical farm, right? We could then be selling that on to our local supermarket. Uh, yeah, I think if you if you're talking about vertical farms for in in terms of production for retail, um, mm. you know, like the the way that it works, you would typically need quite a big uh, big farm in order to be able to compete with the yeah. the unit economics of um, quote cheap foreign imports. You know, for example, most of our herbs now are coming in from Kenya, places mm. like that. So you would usually need a much bigger facility. So like an, I guess unless you live in a very very big office or Sorry, work in a very big office. Yeah. Um, converting that kind of space might be more akin to, to a local model where maybe you service some restaurants. And there's definitely a lot of vertical farms being set up um, with that kind of model. That's that's how we we actually started with uh, with our mini crops brand in London. You know, 150 square meter farm that serviced about 100 restaurants um, in uh, in you know central London. Well, I didn't know that was how it kind of first originated, supplying those local restaurants, but that's just fantastic, isn't it? I mean, and that's what a lot of the consumers are really looking for now, aren't they? They're looking for local produce, fresh, farm to fork kind of thing. So, yeah, absolutely, this is going to be helping that so, so much, isn't it? Um, so, what, in your opinion then, what, what, what sort of barriers are there in, in, in the way when it comes to, to vertical farming and the development of the industry? Well, if, if we split, split it into two areas, there's growers slash brands. So a lot of the companies we hear about in the in the US, for example, you know, the Aero Farms, uh, Bowery's, Plenty's, um, that's one side of the sector. And then the other side of the sector are companies like us that obviously provide the technology. I would say on the grower brand side, there are fewer barriers to entry in terms of setting up a um, and small local vertical farm. Obviously, any company that wants to set up um, requires a, you know, capital, um, capital not only for the um, setting up of the farm itself, but also in terms of you know running the uh, you know running the business and and uh, going out and giving yourself time to to find sorry uh, find customers. 
So, you know, that's one challenge. Another challenge is, is plant science expertise and, and understanding how to grow products. Um, I think there's probably going to be more regulation in this sector moving forward and governments may step in and intervene as they are in the Middle East. Um, so standards are going to be much higher. What we don't want is thousands of small-scale vertical farms being set up and then you know, there being some kind of a disease outbreak or somebody getting killed because they're not following uh, appropriate food growing standards. You know, it, it can be quite complicated. So that's another one. Um, and then, yeah, I think, you know, there will be more and more competition moving forward in, in the future. Um, I think there'll be a, a group of mega vertical farming companies and mega farms being set up, you know, 10 to 50,000 square meter farms uh, in probably peri-urban or rural areas. But then separate to that, you'll, you'll have a lot more of these kind of local last mile uh, vertical farms that set up um, where there are fewer barriers to entry. You know, you can maybe set up a farm with 50 or 100K um, that will compete as well. But at some point, the, the problem with the, the small vertical farming model is it will saturate much quicker because um, effectively they're, they're going to be growing similar products where the unit economics work within a small vertical farming system and then you know what happens to the market when uh, when it saturates um, a lot of people you know could be in trouble or maybe the market transports some other way mm, certainly yeah and i guess this kind of ties into that a little bit in terms of barriers then um i, I guess how do you see sort of government backing and, and commercial backing i mean where do you see that now and, and where do you see that in the future i mean do you think it's it's there enough at the moment I think governments could do more and should do more. And I know that in the UK, they're starting, you know, we've, we've spoken to um, politicians, policymakers, and there is a, an interest in vertical farming. I think, you know, it's, it's not where it should be. In countries like Singapore, where they're providing very healthy grants for, for businesses being set up and other, uh, other levers to, to encourage uh, vertical farming and other uh, activities in CEA. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think the UK in the future will do a little bit more. But I mean, look, we've just been through, well, we're still going through COVID and yeah. uh, people are cash strapped. Um, grant funding has decreased. Um, so I, th I think it's more likely that there'll be more of a push from the private sector in, in future years. Uh, in terms of investors, investors typically are not going to touch very small scale pro uh, projects, at least in our experience. Investors are looking for Again, it depends on the investor. You might find an angel investor that might be interested in putting 10K or 50K or 100K into uh, a vertical farming startup. But ones that we're used to, you know, the venture capitalists are looking to deploy a minimum of you know, 5 or 10 or 50 million. And um, in order to do that, they need to, to obviously remove, or not completely remove, but uh, significantly reduce risk. And the thing that you have to do in the sector in order to do that for them would be something like an off-taker agreement with a supermarket. Um, supermarkets are not going to provide lengthy or even any off-taker agreements uh, unless they see a farm quite often. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg uh, situation. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is a bit of a challenging time because there haven't really been any exits in, in the CEA sector for investors to be able to value um, the sector and determine you know, what's an appropriate exit multiple. So capital inflow will increase in the future, but um, not for now. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Really, I think it's just a case of the government can clearly see the benefits of it. They're just obviously they've had a few other things on their minds recently, haven't they? It's been a tough eighteen months, twenty-four months for everybody. But 
um, yeah, let's hope that it, it gets some backing soon because it's definitely the future, right? Um, so we're all excited for that. But I saw, I mean, commercially-wise, I mean, I, I can definitely see it kicking off because I saw recently, obviously, you announced your, your partnership with HEC, the, uh, the, the, the super sustainable vegetarian food brand. So that's really exciting. Yeah, that's a, an, an excellent partnership. Um, mm -hmm. Really, really nice family business, obviously from the north of England, from, from Yorkshire. Um, yeah. they, they've, they've got some great uh, growth ambitions. I think in the press today, they announced that they want to uh, to produce a million sausages a day by, by 2025. Yeah. I saw I that, yeah. See, our, um, our vertical farm or our, our business plays a very small role in that. Um, I think our, you know, we... we we delivered our first uh, vertical farming system to them last week. Um, the focus of our partnership initially is going to be on research and development, you know, having something on site that actually will support them to look at um, different nutritional characteristics, different products, um, different flavors. And obviously all of those are very, very critical in terms of their customer base. And then, you know, we'll build out the partnership and, and see where it goes. But they're um, definitely a, a great and, and British uh, company uh, to be working with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I thought that was a really strategic move from you guys. Partnering yourselves with such a sustainable and healthy brand is, is exactly what you're you're about. So it's, it's definitely a very strategic move. Um, so, I mean, this is the biggest thing, I think, for everybody involved. The, the, the traditional farmers who are sort of reluctant to get involved, the governments, everybody, uh, is the output, the yield output. Um, so, what, I mean, what have you seen in terms of yield output and energy use? Um, and sort of what tech innovations do you think need to be focused on to improve the yield output even more? Well, I think in our experience, yield slash output is, is actually not a concern at all. I think um, to, give, to give you one example, um, spinach. Spinach is a very difficult crop to grow uh, outdoors and indoors. It's very susceptible to disease. We had an Innovate um, UK funded uh, project. Um, if you look at um, spinach yields, outdoors they can be you know three uh three to five kilos per square meter per annum um, tiny um indoors we've you know we've uh, ended up with much better crop um you know crop yields between i think 30 and or 35 and 60 kilos per square meter per annum. Mm -hmm. so you know 10 to 20 roughly 10 to 20 times higher but also much better uh, produce um limited need to, to obviously wash um so yeah i think you know that I would say that that's the case in most products we grow, you know, yield and output are not problems at all. I think the big talking point, at least in our experience, um, is obviously the amount of energy that we need to use to obviously produce um, yeah. said crops um, in such a way. Um, setting up a vertical farm uh, in, in an area where you can tap into sustainable sources of, of energy, i.e., you know, from, from large-scale wind farms uh, or from solar if you're in a, in a hotter geography, um, or I need things like nuclear, if you're, if you're in France, so France is, I think, 70% nuclear, um, makes the, the argument much, uh, much better. But if you're just, you know, buying power off the grid, then the, the energy um, required per kilo compared to outdoor farming is obviously significantly higher. Um, in our experience, it's actually lower than what you would see in a greenhouse. So people, um, people think that greenhouse farming is, um, you don't use a lot of energy, you actually do, because you're having to, to heat or cool the environment and still stabilize it. And quite often they're using supplementary um, lighting. You don't have the benefit as well of, um, of increasing output um, in terms of land use. 
Um, but but I, th I think that's definitely the biggest talking point, um, at least that we see with investors and, and potential buyers. But, you know, we, we've done a lot of life cycle um, analyses and, and um, obviously we have a lot of data from you know, five years of growing now and we're quite comfortable with the arguments. Yeah, I think that's it. And it was something I, again, I picked up on quite a lot of the, the CEA 4.0 event last week. It was that in every case, every case study I saw, the yield out, the output was higher. Um, and that was the key, the key factor for everyone involved. I mean, some things were using more energy. There a lot of the time there was a lot less water being used, a lot less um, sort of general energy being consumed. But then if you sort of took everything in total, as in, yeah, heating, lighting, HVAC, a lot of the time was, was proving to be quite a, a drain on the, the energy use as well. Um, but I think it's, it's less about that, more about, of course, the output is higher, but it's the, it's the clinicalness of it. I mean, you don't have to be waiting for seasons. You don't have to be waiting for humans to, to do these things. It can be so much more precise. As soon as one crop is done, you get onto the next one and it's just so efficient, right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sold on all those, but I'm, I'm obviously very biased, but, um, yeah, I think you know the ability to effectively have a have a uh, you know conditions where it's the twenty sixth of July, uh, you know twenty seven twenty eight degrees year round at sixty five percent humidity obviously means that we're going to have much better yields and and, and crops and outputs. Um, your, your point on water as well is is correct. Depending on the type of system you're using, um, you know hydroponic generally if you're circulating your water can use a lot less than outdoors our systems are also aeroponics you can flick between the two which uses even less water so um so yeah you know our, our argument is that yeah in the short term even you know, no model is perfect we're probably going to use a bit more energy to produce um every kilogram of product but there are many many other factors that need to be considered you know positive externalities around health around jobs, uh, around water, um, that also need to be taken into consideration. And we just need to move away from the narrative that it's just about carbon. Um, but as I said, we're also dealing with that. Exactly, exactly. And you touched on something there. I mean, health is, is going to be a huge, huge factor. We've both touched on it already. I mean, consumers are just going that way now. Health and well-being, even now more so than ever, is, is key to a lot of what people are buying, um, especially, as I said, the pandemic now more than ever. Um, okay, so where, I mean, again, this is something I've heard a lot recently, I think AI and machine learning, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, because they both appear to be being adopted a heck of a lot in, into virtual farming at the moment, um, vertical farming, so I think I said virtual farming, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on where you think they're going to be integrated a bit more. I mean, I'm probably going to be a bit controversial and say that I think most claims that are made around AI and machine learning are rubbish uh, in the sector. Oh, really? I think, um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think we we've got a pretty good handle handle on who's doing what in terms of software, mm. um, and obviously we we feel like we've got one of the best um, and most detailed uh, advanced software offerings in the market. Um, and uh, and even you know AI and machine learning. First of all, you don't need AI and machine learning for a lot of the processes. It's not really required. Um, we've started to to integrate it in some of the processes, but in terms of developing complex algorithms, this requires a lot of work, a lot of investment, and also, as I said, you know, it's not required for everything. Um, so I I think the average vertical farm that has has software, and again. Not speaking for everyone, because I know that there are some a, a lot of excellent vertical farming examples out there. But the average, based on our our experience, um, are just basically collecting very basic environmental data, 
um, allowing users to switch on and off things in the farm. Um, you know, this, this doesn't really require AI machine learning and certainly doesn't involve it. So um, I think they're very, um, like I said, probably sound very controversial, but I think they, they use, these terms are used very, very loosely. And um, you need a very experienced team to actually build proper uh, AI and machine learning algorithms and processes. Yeah, no, I mean, that may be controversial with some, but I mean, I, I, from what you've just said, it sounds like very logical to me. I mean, um, IoT is coming into it a heck of a lot. I mean, sensors and, and the simple being able to, to switch something off at the right time and, and notice a different plant, these kinds of things. Obviously, that is very much needed, but yeah, I think from what you've just said, the very complex nature and algorithms involved in AI, um, it sounds like it's a bit more than needed at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 sorry, just on that point, I just say that, um, you know, things like using, you know, machine vision or, or AI for, for things like um, strawberry picking or, or um, other types of soft fruits is obviously something that's very much needed. But if you're taking a, as we do in our systems, if you're taking, a, you know, a, a bed of salad um, through our processes, um, you don't really need AI or machine learning for that. It's just a data point. You know, we use we use sensors to or motion sensors to track the trays coming through. We use RFID tracking to determine what type of tray it is and what type of product it is, which will then tell our automated harvesting machines you need to cut at this length, uh, this level of intensity, and then the product's going to go down this chute. Um, if it's an allergen, it's going to go on one track. If it's non-allergen, it's going to go on another track. All of that stuff does not involve um, AI or machine learning. This is just data points, um, encoding and programming. But as I said, some of the more sophisticated stuff when it comes to, for example, harvesting fruits um, does require stuff like that. Mm, yeah, actually, that's a good point. And a lot of the people I know, again, in this industry, are using data analytics a heck of a lot. Um, but that's, yeah, that's no, a big jump between AI. Um, and I think I heard you mention this recently, actually. Um, and it's something that was unique to Vertical Future, and that's that your plants actually move. And this will, this will lead us on to our next question quite nicely. But yeah, am I right? I heard you say that. Yes, yeah. And that allows us to make a lot of the claims that we do around space utilization. So um, in a kind of standard vertical farm, when, let's say, you've got your lights on for 16 hours, yeah. the, um, the remaining eight hours, you know, what, what are you doing with that space? Usually nothing. Um, when, you, when you buy a vertical farm, or you run a vertical farm, you're investing a lot of money in, in that asset and you need to make um, as much um, money from that asset and much use of that asset as you can over a given time period. So what we do is um, we focus a lot on using our software and, and our automation throughout our facility to move crops um, throughout um, through a journey effectively um, to, to make best use of, of space and optimize yields uh, overall using different photo periods and, and so on. So yeah, it's, it's a very, very different approach to what most people are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds very unique to me. I, again, I don't think I've had another business involved in this industry doing that. So that's fantastic. Um, and that does really lead us nicely onto to sort of my final question, actually, which is about automation uh, and robotics, because I know a heck of a lot of businesses that are in, in agri-tech more generally, less so maybe in, in vertical farming. Um, I have heard of businesses who have gantries um, that sort of have their sensors moving along the tops and so that the robots then pack them and move them on and take them out of the facility. Um, but certainly in Agritech, a lot of robotics coming into it as well, planting potatoes in Belgium, various different things I'm hearing. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you see this as the future or kind of do you think that 
human beings should always be involved in that process? I think it's both. I think it depends on what you're talking about in the farm. I think our systems are built to involve automation to reduce or eliminate bottlenecks, operational bottlenecks that would otherwise exist. We, we don't believe in sending people in on ladders or scissor lifts. Um, why, why would we need an IHOP when we can actually put, a, you know, we can put another vertical farming system uh, in there and make better use of the space? Um, and also you know, reduce uh, the risk of, of um, you know, cross-contamination or bringing pathogens into the environment um, by not obviously involving humans. But you know, that being said, these are the basic processes. If we talk about monitoring the farm, um, I think you will probably, or sorry, monitoring the software that is monitoring the farm, I think you will always need to have humans. I, I believe it's very, very important. Um, but I think our um, hypothesis is that, um, or thesis is that we should be upskilling people and getting them more involved in, in more um, intellectual activities uh, as opposed to you know, the very kind of um, labor-intensive tasks that we be involved in most vertical farms. Um, and then, yeah, I think the other process where, where humans will probably continue to be involved is, is at packing stage. Um, at the very end, obviously, we have automated, automated packing processes, which are very sophisticated. Um, but in general, we found that, you know, it's great to, or it's very important to have, have humans involved at that end process, you know, checking the quality of the, the end product that's uh, effectively going out. So it's, of course, you know, there will always be uh, the displacement of some jobs. It doesn't mean that we're eliminating jobs completely. We're just trying to upskill. Yeah, and I guess that's been a lot of people's unfortunate argument against robotics and, and automation, hasn't it? It's been the, the loss of jobs, but then it's they, they just need to open their minds up a little bit more, I think, than they are. I would say anyway. Again, might be a bit controversial, but the creation of jobs should outweigh the, the loss of jobs. Wouldn't you agree with that? Agreed. So, look, I mean, Jamie, it's been such a pleasure having you on board. Um, I, it's been a real exciting episode for myself. I'm a, a big agrotech specialist and love it uh, myself. Came from a background in, in kind of sustainable development, geography, and geospatial kind of imaging. And yeah, it's been such a pleasure to have you here. Um, I was just sort of wondering where our visitors can kind of find yourself and find Vertical Future on, online before I let you go. Yeah, so, um, so it's verticalfuture.co.uk. Um, and Obviously, we're on LinkedIn um, and Facebook and, and all that. Uh, but yeah, most of our stuff's on our website and on, uh, on LinkedIn. All right. Fantastic. Again, absolute pleasure to have you on, Jamie. And I hope to see you soon. You too. Thank you very much, Jack. Thank you very Appreciate much. It. Bye Thanks. bye. Right. That was fantastic. Great to have Jamie on board with us today. Um, and you can find us at the IoT podcast on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you'd like to join in the conversation on agritech and vertical farming, then please feel free to do so. Uh, and if you'd like to sign up to our newsletter, then please check the link below. And likes and comments are always appreciated. Thanks so much again for joining us on another great episode of the IoT podcast. <laughs>